Welcome to the new Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Sharman. Uh, I'm a coach. Uh, I've been doing that for about 10 years at Sharman Ultra. I'm also a professional ultra runner with a focus on 100 milers in particular. Uh, and I've run over 100 road marathons with a 221 PR. So I've certainly spent a lot of time uh, with my own training and training other people for endurance uh, distances. So the aim of this podcast is that we're going to have discussions with sports scientists and thought leaders. Uh, we're going to question assumptions and things that maybe people do in training and they just assumed it would work, but need to uh, maybe make some changes there and adapt, uh, both for training and racing. We're going to learn about the latest research and also find practical and real-world applications from that research. Plus, we'll tease out differences in marathon and ultra training uh, and racing just so that we can see what the differences are and how you might adjust things in each circumstance. Um, this first episode has a broad scope, and we're talking to Dr. Sean Bearden. He's a professor of physiology at Idaho State with a BS in sports medicine from the University of Virginia, uh, an MS in uh, exercise science and health promotion from George Mason University, and a PhD in exercise physiology from Florida State. Uh, his postdoc research fellowship was at the Yale University School of Medicine. Uh, he's been running his own lab since 2004, and he's been heavily involved with research and sports performance worldwide. He's also a coach uh, and the host of the very popular Science of Ultra podcast, uh, which also has a very detailed blog attached to it, uh, where he talks with scientists, coaches, and athletes to bring valid, reliable, and actionable information to runners. I've known him for a long time, and I was part of the Coach's Corner segment of his uh, Soup podcast, the Science of Ultra podcast, uh, in last year in 2019. That was a monthly thing where we had a group of coaches all discussing things. Um, so... This should be a really interesting conversation. It's good for me to be able to ask him questions rather than the other way around. Um, this show delves into um, what bioenergetics is. That's a, an area that he spent a lot of his research time on. And also the types of research that he has worked outside of that and the, the applications that we have to actually running. And particularly ultra running is, is his biggest uh, interest, but uh, a lot of the research tends to be done with marathoners or cyclists just because of the practicalities of how you can do research. Uh, we also discussed optimal pacing uh, and how that can differ from road races compared to longer ultras. We discussed gaps in research. Uh, this applies to marathoning, but it also especially applies to longer distances. And this podcast will be aiming to look at both marathons and uh, things beyond that distance as well. Uh, and then uh, also about personalized medicine and how much research doesn't tend to look at uh, some of the other factors and differences between men and women or related to older athletes compared to younger athletes. So we covered quite a lot here. Um, I think we'll definitely be needing another chat with Sean in the not too distant future, particularly to be discussing the mental side of things and the tactical side. But uh, I hope you enjoy it and uh, let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Sean Bearden. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Ian. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm doing very well. Well, it's great to be podcasting with you again after being uh, for the last year on the Science of Ultra podcast and, and with something obviously you continue to do. So uh, would you just tell everyone a little bit about uh, what you do and also about that podcast too? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Well, I am by trade and training an exercise physiologist. So I am now, my official job, or my real job, if you will, is as a professor of physiology at Idaho State University, where I teach and I do research. So I teach 
human anatomy and physiology, our university is the mandated healthcare university for the state of Idaho, which means that all of the pre-health professions programs are at our our school. All of the pre-health, pre-medical, pre-dental, uh, PA programs, OTPT, radiology, all of it. And almost all of those students have to come through my course. So I teach about 500 students per year in a two-semester sequence. But my, my love is the exercise side of physiology, and some of that's where my research really is. I've studied human performance since now the late 90s, and my niche within that has been bioenergetics, really the use of energy from of muscle. And my postdoctoral research training was in the supply of oxygen to muscle, so the microcirculation and how blood flow is controlled into working muscle. But as you mentioned, my uh, my love at the moment is podcasting for runners. And so I also coach. I coach about 60 runners from all around the world, mostly ultramarathon runners, uh, a couple of multidiscipline um, athletes, but um, all the rest are runners of one level or another. And, and and I do this podcast, Science of Ultra, where the goal or the intent is to bring evidence-based information to the people that really need it most and will use it most. That's excellent. And, and obviously, it's great that you're involved in so many different ways to help uh, runners and to help uh, scientists and people in the medical field. So how actually is that affected at the moment, given the coronavirus? Are you able to still teach courses? Um, how yeah. is that element of the university still working? Well, I, I very luckily, I guess, uh, was ended up on sabbatical this year. So every seven years after tenure, we're allowed to request and go on sabbatical. So this year I've been on sabbatical. I wasn't teaching. I didn't have to deal with all of the chaos that that ensued this in this spring of, of 2020. But I can tell you what happened, and that is that our university, about halfway through the semester, ended up having to do what most did, and that is start spring break early for students. They had an extended spring break and then also closed down in-person teaching. So all teaching went online. It would have worked out okay for me because I have actually taught the classes that I teach usually in person. I've, in fact, taught sections of them in uh, an online format only. But that, that's been, I think, what most people have dealt with is having to go to things like Zoom meetings and deal with virtual delivery of their content for whatever jobs they have. And um, that is what we do. We have, we're, we're integrated with Zoom zoom already for online course delivery and so we really have an infrastructure in place to do that um it would have been would have been okay but i was lucky to be on sabbatical now that sounds like uh, perfect timing for that and i know that you uh, went to the uk a couple of months ago just before lockdowns occurred and you were able to speak to quite a lot of scientists there for the podcast and i'd certainly encourage people to to check that out there are some really good uh, conversations there very very useful and very informative so why don't we talk a little bit about your research? Um, so at the moment, does that mean that you're on hold with all elements of that, but then you'll have things you'll go back to uh, in the following year? Well, the purpose of a sabbatical is it's twofold. It's one for a professor just to recharge their batteries and become creative again after they've been you know, going now for years in meetings and classrooms. So getting, the, getting a little bit of creative juice from relaxation 
is uh, is important. So that's part one. But part two is is to then do something with that time, something productive with that time. Some people might actually lo- choose to improve their teaching through some sort of coursework or something of their own. What I and, and others might write, say, a grant or get out research papers. What I chose to do was to go visit research labs. So last fall, for example, I was in France for several weeks uh, at a vi- visiting at a research lab there that does research at UTMB, for example. And then I was meant to be in Italy right now, but that uh, that all fell apart when when COVID hit us. So I'm doing some collaboration with that lab now, just virtually. We're we're discussing our future, future potential projects. The trip to the UK, which you mentioned, which was a, a, an impromptu thing. It had not been planned, but I knew that if I, I knew that I was likely to miss going to Italy, but I had a sh- very short window to suddenly t- t- slam something together and go to the UK, where I could meet with a lot of professors and and research scientists that I had wanted to meet for a long time. So I was able to then meet with them, do some episodes for the podcast, as you mentioned, and thanks for plugging that, but also really have some in-depth discussions with them about the science of the work that they're doing to help to inform better uh, new avenues and possibly new collaborations for my own research going forward. Excellent. Now, that that sounds amazing. And uh, just for people listening in, UTMB, if you're a marathon runner and you haven't heard of ultras, uh, that is basically the biggest uh, trail running uh, ultra in the world, uh, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc around Mont Blanc in France, uh, Switzerland and Italy. Um, so you mentioned that bioenergetics is the uh, the area you studied. So that's focusing on how cells transform energy. So does that research predominantly involve running or does it go well beyond that as well? And, and on the running side of it, what kind of things um, have you investigated and, and, and some things that you've learned from that that are useful for runners? When I first started doing that research in the late 90s, I studied runners somewhat, but primarily cyclists. And that's in part just due to practical considerations of, of being able to collect samples like blood you know, in the middle of a, of a ride where the run is a little trickier. It's still quite doable, but um, it, it was just for simplistic, uh, simplicity. And also because we were bridging off of some previous research, and that's probably the more important aspect, previous research that had been done in cyclists. And the the main crux of all of that research in my early days was this thing called the slow component. It, it's a a portion of the intensity range domain that is, let's put it in plain English, you can you can be at very easy intensities, you can be at harder intensities, you can be at very hard intensities. Well, it, it turns out that after you go from about easy to, to getting harder, there's a point at which you start consuming more oxygen per work output. So for a runner, it would be more, more oxygen per increase in pace. That's a reduction in economy. You're using more energy for doing the same jump in work rate. And so that really has been what's fascinated me now for for many years, decades even, in the realm of human bioenergetics. The implication, of course, is that you are 
somehow wasteful if if there are reasons for saying that that's not actually a good term but i think we get the point that that a reduced economy is is not something we actually want for sustainability of performance and uh the the idea was that we could figure out what is causing that reduced economy figure out how to train to fix it or or get it back get the economy back and ultimately then be able to sustain harder paces for longer as you might expect as is always the case in the research world that sounds a whole lot simpler than it's been and we've been now working on we i say we me and many other labs working on this concept for decades and we're just barely getting a handle on it so is that looking at what is basically the most efficient way to run whether that may be changes in running gait the gear used like shoes changes in fitness types of training to work out the optimum um energy expenditure for a given le- distance of race would that be a, a the kind of area you're talking about there those things certainly contribute and i would call that that complementary research so people who are researching as you mentioned let's say shoes for example or uh, running form and gait what i and the people i work with and collaborate with have been working on mostly is understanding at the cellular level and at the muscle level and when i say muscle i'm talking about the the group of muscle cells along with the blood flow delivery to those muscles the physiology of why and how those cells lose their economy at those higher intensities what's really going on at a mechanistic level within the muscle okay and and given this is a podcast for marathoners and ultra runners and there's pretty big difference a lot, a lot of similarities obviously but big differences particularly that a marathon is much more uniform um the pacing for example is much more uniform while an ultra marathon will typically involve hills and changes in temperature and changes in day and night and terrain um what insights have come from that, that that are kind of more maybe applicable to marathoners and then do those necessarily also apply to even longer distances? Yeah, you're you're really right and, and, and insightful there to bring up those those two distances, if you will. The marathon is typically run right in the sweet spot of this range where we can both reach a steady state, but also where we've got this re- reduced economy. Really, the, you're right at the the edge of what's sustainable within the realm of that reduced economy. So the marathon distance is actually a really fascinating intensity for understanding or, or at least applying these concepts. When we get to ultra marathons, the average intensity is much slower. You may be cycling, as you mentioned, between a higher intensity with something like uphills uh, and a lower intensity with maybe downhills. But the average is closer to that range at which we are still within the optimal economy for that person and, and we haven't begun to, to, to lose economy. So really a lot of what we've studied does apply best even for, for the marathon and intensities. What we know is that the, there is a metabolic rate at which we can predictably uh, understand or, or make predictions about the nature of fatigue above that intensity. And, and so really what I'm getting at here is critical speed or critical power. Above critical speed, the, the factors that manifest with fatigue are highly predictable. 
And in fact, if we know a few things about somebody, say measured in them in the lab, we can look at their pace at any point and tell you exactly how much extra energy they have. That is effectively when they're going to fatigue based on their, their current pace and those numbers from the lab. Below that, things change. The fatigue mechanisms change. And now things like hydration, the amount that the person is eating, their, their glucose that they're consuming and carbohydrates they're consuming and other factors become more the determining um, issue. So for ultra marathoners, we're down in that range. But at the marathon intensity, we're, we're really skirting that line. And more recent research now has told us that the critical speed declines over just a couple of hours. The um, And so just to check, critical, critical speed is dependent on how long you want to run for. So there'd be a critical speed for a 10K, critical speed for a marathon, for an individual runner. So it's, it's working out what they're most sustainable, the highest sustainable pace they could do for that distance. Actually, there's, so there's a, there's a nuance to this that I need to in, insert for you. Okay. Cri- critical speed is the speed at which, or the, it, really what it is, is the speed at which you have the metabolic rate above which the, the energy used cannot be fully achieved or fully used by wholly aerobic means. Let me try and restate that a little bit different way. Above critical speed, there is necessary or obligatory anaerobiasis that the body at a whole body level cannot account for. Below critical speed, you're at metabolic rates at which 100% of the energy you use can be achieved aerobically at a whole body level. So you're still producing lactate. There's still anaerobic metabolism going on. There's anaerobic metabolism going on even when you're sleeping. But it's this borderline between what the whole body can do and what it can't. So the critical speed is a metabolic rate that is completely independent of any distance that you're running. It is a value for you physiologically. Okay. And just to cl- clarify as well, aerobically means using oxygen, anaerobically means uh, energy, using energy without oxygen. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, given you, actually, I didn't know that, that uh, there's an element of anaerobic, no matter even sleeping, uh, even when you have basically zero uh, exercise. So is, is that just a tiny fraction typically? Like say if someone's running a marathon, is that just a tiny, tiny percentage or, uh, and is it something that then increases? If you were measuring someone who was about to bonk, they've paced too aggressively. That's something that would be spiking. Is it uh, at the point where it becomes unsustainable? E- yes. So, uh, the, the anaerobic metabolism that you mentioned with, uh, say even just while we're sleeping, while we're sitting around and sleeping, there's always anaerobic metabolism. And I think that, I think the, the way to illustrate this and point this out best is to recognize that when you use carbohydrate as an energy source, the first steps of that are anaerobic metabolism. That is what we, that is the metabolism we talk about when we talk about anaerobic metabolism in a cell outside of, outside of the mitochondria in a cell that's called glycolysis. It's taking glucose and breaking it down to either pyruvate or lactate. That's absolutely required for all use of all carbohydrate. 
that is anaerobic metabolism. So we have a resting blood lactate level, for example, even while you're sleeping. So there's always anaerobic metabolism going on, even when there's plenty of oxygen. But it is, as you mentioned, a very small percentage of the energy that you're actually using. And as we begin to exercise, we have more of it along with more of the use of oxygen in the mitochondria. And then we exercise harder and harder and harder, and we get up to, say, marathon paces. And at marathon paces, there's there may be a lot of anaerobic and aerobic metabolism going on, but but what happens with the with the non-use of oxygen and the anaerobic metabolism is you're making lactate. That lactate leaves muscle cells that are making it and goes to other muscle cells and other tissues, especially the heart, that can then use it for for energy in their own mitochondria. And what do you say then, given you mentioned that the marathon is um, kind of a, a not an optimum distance, but a, a kind of special distance where it's getting to the the outer limits of, of what's possible with these kind of thresholds before there's a greater deterioration? Do you think that's maybe part of the appeal of the marathon, why it is so popular, um, as opposed to a half marathon? Both are difficult, uh, and the half marathon is admittedly a more popular race. But do you think the appeal of the marathon is partly just the fact that it is on a threshold that makes it especially difficult to get it right. Because running a half marathon, you don't bonk. But in running a marathon, you've gone just beyond that point where several things are just getting a little bit more difficult to hold on to towards the end. So do you think that could be part of the, the kind of magical appeal of why that is such an important distance? Or could it just be the fact that half marathons, because it says half, it doesn't sound as impressive as, as the full marathon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you do have a point there at the end about the half marathon uh, uh, question. But, you know, I, but I actually think that you are right about, about that there may be some physiologic underpinning to the appeal that we that you don't consciously recognize. And I think that's actually maybe true of 10K as well. So I'll come back to that. But at the marathon distance, you are going a few miles past glycogen depletion and uh, unless you eat. And I think that is a huge part of the fascination that people then have with the marathon because you know that if if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't eat something you're going to, as you say, bonk, you're, you're going to, the wheels are going to come off. And so you're pushing yourself to your limit. That's a substrate limit. When we say substrate, we're talking about the, the chemicals and the carbohydrates and fats that, that you use for energy. So in that case, it's a, it's a limit in carbohydrate that you must deal with, or you're not going to be able to squeeze out those last few miles. And anybody can kind of hurt for a few miles and deal with it. So that's why I think the marathon is particularly interesting for a lot of people um, and I, I think you're right to point that out. 10K is also interesting because it's right about the pace for most people, the metabolic rate of critical power. And now we get into that issue of how much work can you do anaerobically before you do truly fatigue more at the um, at the level of some of these other metabolites that build up when we go faster. Well, I, I can definitely attest to that. I'm much more scared of a 10K than I am a marathon. Uh, yeah. It's uh, much harder to keep it closer to that uh, even more uh, finely balanced threshold there. And and related to, to all of this, both for 10K and marathon, 
would there be a significant difference between a faster runner and a slower runner? So you've got a, a fast runner maybe running, you know, a low 30 minute 10K versus a slower run one doing 60 minutes. So isn't it more time based and also for the marathon, that kind of two hour point being a, a critical um, amount of time that the body can do certain processes versus, say, a four hour marathoner? So are we talking more about near elite level people here? And for people who are slower, would it be shorter distances that the same thing would apply or would it just be other things holding them back such as lack of fitness that that those are the you know it's, it's not really physiological limits it's more blisters and other things that could potentially uh, be a bigger issue yeah this is an excellent point yeah you're really you, you know your stuff for sure uh it, it does matter a lot how uh, how fit a person is because you are quite you're quite right there that somebody who is less fit will have some of these demarcating points. We'll call them thresholds, if you will, for for lack of a better term. Um, I don't know if you want to go into the, the the topic of the term threshold, but it's messy. I think most people appreciate that it's messy. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it is true that people who are less fit have some of those domains or those those thresholds at lower relative intensities for their overall capacity and our use of carbohydrates and fats and things also shift with training. So it is it is a very general way of approaching uh, this discussion to to say something like as I did like 10k is kind of around a critical critical speed pace because that'll be right on for a few people but it'll be higher or low depending if we're talking about elites or or less fit people. And I'm sure you find the same as I do that when you're coaching people, I mean, I've got people who are very fast and I've got people who are very slow. So when thinking about a 10K intensity, I have one of them that's a five minute mile pace, one of them that's a 10 minute mile pace. And there's a a world of difference there in terms of the demands on the body as well as the the training it takes to get there. But this is actually a pretty good segue to a question that I want to ask related to one of your recent podcasts that uh, was with Professor Andy Jones from the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, And that was discussing... um, so he, he works on limits of human physiology. He worked on the Breaking 2 project with Nike. And um, you, you were asking him questions about what's the differences there between marathon and ultramarathon demands on the body? Because most of the research is obviously related to marathons. It's just a, a lot more people run them. It's a more uniform thing, easier to do the research on it. Um, and so related to that, would you say that most of the marathoning research applies to longer distances because what we've just discussed is kind of those slower efforts where it's not necessarily just a physiological barrier like if you do a hundred mile race it's not just what is your oxygen carrying capacity it's going to be a whole load of other things like can you stomach enough food are your muscles so damaged they can't exercise as much so he was able to speculate a little bit on on maybe some of that stuff applies but not all of it so is there a lot, are there big gaps basically in our knowledge, both physiologically and of how important other factors would be? Yeah, the gap analogy brings up a a visual for me, and the 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 immediate response that I have is, you know what? I wouldn't even call it a gap. I'd say we're in a completely different movie or a complete uh, the visual analogy I'm trying to hold on to, and we're in a completely different place. Um, in fact, uh, a different sport, if you will. Now, of course, something like a flat 50K is an ultra marathon, but it's going to be a lot more like a, mm-hmm. a marathon because they're basic, you know, they're very similar in terms of, of distance. Uh, but 
as we start getting into longer ultramarathons and more mountainous ultramarathons, I think you're just dealing with com- with completely different sports. What we know about the physiology of at the of of the human body at the marathon distance has been worked out now since really the 70s, the late 60s. We know a tremendous amount about how the muscle uses energy, about the how the body adapts, about how hydration level influences these things, all of that. But we're now only just beginning to appreciate how much that breaks apart and diverges as we go longer. And I kind of alluded to that a few minutes ago when I mentioned that even your critical speed declines over that time. So in other words, the critical speed you have now, as a, you say you're fresh, you haven't done a workout today, if you were to then go out and run mo- even just moderately hard, not even quite at marathon intensity, for a couple of hours, your critical speed is going to be lower. What that means is that running at the same pace is going to feel a lot harder. Now that comes as no surprise to your listeners. They're going to say, "Yeah, I know that. I've <laughs> if I run long a long time and I try to hold the same pace, it feels a lot harder." But now we're understanding a little bit about the underpinnings of why that's the case. At the same time, what does that mean now for the the energy demands, the the demands from the central nervous system, the demands on the muscle? when we're out at six hours and eight hours and 14 hours and, and even well beyond that in longer ultra marathons, we just don't know. And I think we are, we are now just waking up to the appreciation and recognition that the things we understand at the marathon distance are perhaps not a good starting point for looking at longer ultra marathons, but instead what we maybe need to do is not carry that, that psychological baggage into the 18 hour domain and the 20 hour domain and really just start fresh and just say, we have no idea what this person looks like at that time. Let's not think that they've just extended a run. Let's just look at it completely fresh. That that's fascinating. I think it's one of the things that I see the most as a mania, an ultra runner, and a coach mania of ultras, uh, ultra runners as well. Is just how much of it is not necessarily even physical. Um, that obviously that's important. And would you agree that all other things being equal, if you improve your marathon time, that's going to help you with ultras? But uh, it's not necessarily. It becomes a, a less important factor the longer the distance is. So. Um, the way I tend to look at it, uh, and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this, is for like a 5K, what it comes down to is how fit are you? How, how fast can you go? How efficiently can you get oxygen to the muscles? How light are you? But then as it gets longer and longer, more and more factors come into it. So even by the marathon, you've got to be able to eat some food and you've got to be able to do that well enough to to deal with it. So it's not just pure, purely physical there. Plus, there's a bit more maybe mental toughness in digging in because it's a longer amount of time. And then as it gets to, say, 20 hours and, and even longer distances, that those other factors start to become a bigger factor of it. Um, and, and the way I think of it is that maybe the short distances, it's you know 95% fitness and the longer ones, maybe it's 50% or 25% that determines the differences in performance. Does that sound like just as a, a framework to start with, but then you've got a big unexplained area that isn't just the physiology? Does, does that make sense? 
It absolutely makes sense. And I do completely agree. Now, if you're talking about uh, 5K where you're going to do your absolute personal best, then, you know, there is a significant amount of psychology that comes into it of yes. you being able yeah. to, to, to accept the discomfort, <laughs> to put it nicely, uh, of what of what you're going to feel. But the difference is going to be seconds, really, now. Exactly. A it's a smaller percentage off exactly. from your maximum than you might have in, in a 100-mile race where if you mentally give in and you start walking, you add 10 hours to your time. Absolutely right. Yeah. And there's no doubt that, as you mentioned to, to start the question, that if somebody is is fit and, and trains well at, for a marathon distance, it doesn't take much more, really. It doesn't take much more to be prepared for doing even very long ultra marathons. The fitness is is there. It, it becomes much more psychological and much more skill based in that you know how to take care of yourself. You know, check in with: Are you eating well? Are you drinking enough? Are you taking care of blisters that are beginning to to crop up? All of those sorts of things. And admittedly, everything we're talking about now, I feel like we could go down every one of these rabbit holes for hours and hours on each of them. But uh, I think we may have to, to come back for future podcasts with you to, to discuss some of them more. But uh, related to this is some of your recent research has been about pacing in 100 milers. Um, so first of all, what what is the optimum pacing for, say, up to a marathon? And then have you found any potential differences given it is more than just the, the physical ability for longer distances? And I'm guessing it would be a sliding scale. A 50K on the roads is obviously much more similar to pacing a marathon, but then a 100 miler of mountains that takes 48 hours is going to be different. So what are some of the, the things you've learned about that? And, and what is the kind of standard starting points from just the shorter road running side of things? Yeah. You know, so I think, Ian, you're really, really good at asking the questions that everybody wants to know the answer to, and in a way that 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 makes it sound like we should know, which I'll be honest, <laughs> we should, but the, but the truth is we don't, man, we don't. So here's the thing, when we, when we ask these kinds of questions, even just like as you started with the marathon distance, we... To ask to answer that question in a scientific way, we'd have to take the same people and the same conditions and the same situation and the same preparation and say, pace it this way and then pace it that way. And that isn't easy to do, obviously. That is not mm -hmm. easy to do. So is, is it maybe better to say we know some things that are not the best way? So <laughs> going out at well, maximum speed and then dying is probably not going to get you your best possible time, but we don't necessarily know the nuances of the, the top few options, but we know some of the bad ones. Well, that's a good point. And so physiologically, we do understand how you utilize say, how the rates at which you use utilize carbohydrate in the best way to kind of mitigate running out too quickly and those sorts of things. So we also look though at at great performances great performers and what did they do that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best you know they it was the best compared to all the other people running those days but but is it the best we don't know but i would say that in terms of of the the general approach though at the marathon distance it does look like either even splitting or negative splitting has worked out to give the better times on average so people who are, if you're running, you're running the, the first half at a pace that you can, you know, you can really sustain. And then the second half, you either do exactly the same or you speed up just a little bit. That seems to be the better approach to getting your best overall time. At ultra marathon distances, the longer you go, the, the more definitively we can say you are going to slow down. So 
there may be a, a few occasions where we could point out where somebody could have possibly negative split a hundred miler. But well, such as the world record are, in 100 miles was a negative split. Zach Bitter sure. just went a couple of minutes quicker for the second half, which blew my mind because I've never seen almost any 100 miler be negative split, never mind the actual world record. No doubt about that. But he he was also on a very smooth surface yes. going around in very controlled conditions. So everything was perfect. It's not And really that's 11 hours, that. so it's it's more the time yeah, than the distance. Exactly. It's probably relevant. Yeah. And we don't know. If he had started, could he have positive split. So could he have gone a little bit faster in the first half, slowed down in the second half and gone a little bit faster? We, we just don't know that it's, mm -hmm. it's quite, it's actually quite possible that that's, that's the case. But when we look at general patterns overall, uh, people slow down quite a bit, the longer the distance. And there's no, I think no reason to say that you should try to avoid that at the same time, of course, as you well know, Ian, I think there are very few people who ever say that they went out too fast. So starting slow and slowing down even a little bit more does preserve some energy for the end. Uh, but uh, but I don't think anybody should ever start off on a hundred mile or expecting they're going to speed up at the end. No, apart from maybe the last half mile, but uh, just this last yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, the last few miles. But when you can use much. whatever you've got left, but I, I would I would guess uh, at least with those longer distances, much more of it comes down to being able to keep yourself uh, motivated and just physically able to keep moving well. Because I, I would guess most people are not getting to their physiological limits when they run a hundred miles. They probably think they are. But actually, it's more of a mental limit of just this sucks, this is hard, I'm not going to push that little bit, or I'm not going to run as much as I could, and that that probably comes into it more. And, and so maybe the mental training and the practice and the experience and things like eating and drinking as well might be more important. And I, I would... I would at least guess just from my own experience and from the people I've coached that it's more important to say to people, okay, just try and save some mental energy so you can dig in for the last third of the race because you'll lose a lot of time there if you really slow down. And this is much less relevant to the shorter distances. But would you agree that, that that's a reasonable way of formulating it, that you're not necessarily going to be able to push the body to its absolute limit, but you are going to get, hopefully get close to your mental limit of how, how much you're willing to put in? Yep, I agree 100%. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we, we've talked a bit about some of the research you've been working on. Um, let's talk a little bit more about physical training. Um, so one of the things you've worked on in the past is uh, zones for training. So that means a lot of different things to different people, whether it's heart rate or power or even speed zones. So what does it mean in terms of the way you've looked at it in the past and, and the kind of more uh, useful way necessarily of, of, of that helping runners and, and then how does it apply to running? Yeah, there's a long history to the the idea of zones, and really, it started in a clinical setting. So it started uh, last century with the observation that we could have people, cardiac patients, working at different intensities and have have various outcomes on on their disease progression, and and so this idea of these zone ranges came to be. And then, as typically happens, the exercise science world adopted those concepts from, uh, from, from the clinical setting. And in the process, because the definitions were always originally quite loose, in the process of, of converting, we've now come 
to have so many different views of what zones mean and and even what measurements we might apply to zones. So we've got heart rate zones, we've got power zones, we've got and so on. I take the view of looking at zones in the context of energy utilization and particularly in oxygen consumption. And that's because we can we can identify some pretty narrow ranges as at which the the oxygen consumption that's used for work changes substantially so we have we have what we would might call easier moderate and in that everybody knows what easy and moderate feels like roughly speaking in in that re- range or that zone if you will we'll call it zone 1 uh, the amount of oxygen that you use or the amount of energy you use to increase the the your paces say or the the number of watts you do on a bike if you're doing if you're doing biking the amount of oxygen is very predictable that you might use for any increment and then we get up into the next zone which would be zone 2 we call this the heavy domain in laboratory speak the heavy domain now we start using more oxygen for any increment in work. And then beyond that, we get into what's what we call the severe domain, but it might be zone three. So that's a three zone model. People often use a five zone model. And in, in a five zone model, you can basically line up the middle of these of these two, whether it's zone three zones or five zones, you can line up the middle such that zone one of a three zone model is the same as zones one and two of a five zone model. Basically you just have either one or two on the, on the bookends. Mm -hmm. And, but the thing is that people then we, we then see so much attributed to the borderlines between these different zones when we get it beyond the three. And there's really no physiologic underpinning to that idea. We can try to attach some ideas to it, but, but it's so loose as, as to really not be very defensible. So I think that, the idea of zones and zone training is really useful when you recognize how gray the areas are and you use them just for the understanding of keeping some runs in one rough area and keeping other runs in another rough uh, rough area and not get too bogged down with those borderlines. But for people who are interested in things like lactate and lactate threshold, there are traditionally two rough lactate thresholds, uh, even though they don't fit the definition of a true threshold. And in the three-zone model, the first lactate threshold defines the barrier between one zone one and zone two, and the second lactate threshold defines the other border, which is zones to, to, to zone two and to zone three. The cool thing, though, about all of this is that the uh, the um, metabolic steady state, the 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 rates at which you can hold for hours or for a very long time, mark that dom- that difference between zone two and zone three. So we have a lot of overlaps and correlates, uh, and we can use these zones for for good training optimization. But we just have to be careful to not attribute too much to them, or to say that one equals another, like saying that l- the lactate threshold equals some some kind of other threshold. So would you say that there's maybe a false level of precision that people put on these concepts, especially if there's five zones and they're rigidly sticking to them and they've got exact uh, heart rates based off their maximum heart rate as a percentage? Would you say that there's 
false level of precision both from there being variations. So one person's 60% of maximum heart rate is not another person's necessarily equivalent to that. There'd be slight variations one person to another. And also just that five zones is maybe overly complex and really at a high level in a practical way. Is it that we just need to make sure we have easy runs, kind of medium hard runs and hard runs? Is is that uh, something people could use without getting too uh, stuck into the extreme detail there? I think that's a perfect summary. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. There is way, way too much attributed to the, that specificity. And as you mentioned, the, the different, and, and I would actually, I would extend what you said and simply say that the, some of those differences are not necessarily even subtle. Some of them are enormous. So a one person's border could be at, at 60% of, of heart rate uh, max or heart or even heart rate reserve. And, and for another person, it could be 45% or 75%. If we're looking at the whole population of people out there from sedentary to elite, so these things shift and are different dramatically. The application of a percentage to a maximum value like percent VO2 max or percent maximum heart rate is, you might as well be throwing just throwing darts at a map on the wall. I think it's, it's the kind of thing that there are a lot of type A personalities within running and within triathlon and within cycling. And we like to be able to say, this is exactly what I should do. And I can nail it down 1% better than I, than I could yesterday because I've got more information. But ultimately, things aren't necessarily that perfect in real life. Um, and even if you can dial things in perfectly for your circumstances, it's still probably being a little bit too focused on trying to alter your heart rate by two beats a minute or, or something similar. Is, is that fair? Yeah, it it sure is fair. Look, Ian, we I think we we suffer from some of our own um, development circumstances in exercise science. In that exercise science came out of in the early days came out of programs of of dance and physical education, and wanted longed for the recognition that harder sciences were getting, like physics and chemistry and so on, and so the application of more rigorous science at a time when we were going through a lot of industrial um, development, industrial complexity, industrial revolution type type um, things in society actually have given us a bit of, of an anchor to drag around. And, and that anchor is that we've, we've tried to make the body like a machine in our minds. We've tried to say this input equals that output, and we can do exactly this number of reps, and we can get exactly that uh, kind of physiologic response. And we understand so much better now that the body just doesn't work like that. For example, if you ate a little differently today, slept a little differently last night, or you've had different kinds of stresses in your life, something like, say, your cortisol levels, your hormone stress levels in the body might be slightly different. These are all creating, maybe you're a little bit dehydrated, maybe you um, had more a uh, higher fat diet for the last couple of days than typical. All of these things are creating a little micro environment for all the cells of your body. And it's those environments in which you're creating the stress of any given workout. So one workout of, say, five by four minutes running hard today is received by those cells or experienced by those cells completely differently. Well, I shouldn't say completely, but but differently 
then that same workout would be last month or that it would be next month or perhaps even that it would even be tomorrow. So we have to stop thinking of the body like a like a computer where we just put in some numbers and we get some numbers back out reproducibly and predictably every time. There are far too many environmental, and I say environment, I mean within the body of around cells, considerations that skew or or influence how those cells respond to a stimulus you're giving them with a workout. And so this is really some of the art of training rather than just the pure science that you can't just say, um, I'm Mr. Spock and here are my numbers and this is what I do and this is the optimum in no, and there's no doubt about it. It's much more about um, being able to judge effort. And, and one thing I, I tend to speak to people a lot about is just how, yes, heart rate tells you some information or power tells you some information, but the brain, if you can get uh, in better at judging effort, is also including every possible um, sensor that you have in the body about temperature, about how you're feeling that day, if you're tired, if you're stressed, um, as well as the the effort level of the run and, and the pace and other things. So would you say that's one of the most important skills that any runner learns is that ability to judge effort and to factor everything in rather than just looking at, say, one output like heart rate or power? I wouldn't even say it's one of the most, but I'd say the most important, absolutely 100% the most important uh, skill that any runner can develop. Yeah. And look, you know, the other side of that is is something that I think everybody will appreciate if we simply say, imagine you could have, the, quote unquote, the perfect training plan. The one that in theory, there is no, so first there is no perfect training plan, but imagine we actually got there, this thing that you're hoping for. And then let's say we just add a little bit of doubt. You're not really sure or confident in it. I guarantee you it's not going to work out well. So in other words, the mind trumps on both directions. Yeah. And um, there's no doubt that being able to listen to yourself and listen to your body, what's happening is that your brain is picking up on all of those things that are going on in your body. So you may call it soft science. You may think that it's not rigorous. You may think, well, I'm just being a little soft today and I kind of feel slightly fatigued, but you know, I should do this workout anyway. Well, no, your brain has evolved over millennia to actually give you that sense because it knows and it's it's picking up and making the measurements of all those things we're talking about in the body. So while it may be an art, the reality is that your brain is is kind of one of the most rigorous scientific measurement devices, comprehensive measurement devices that that you have, and you need to learn to listen to it. And maybe a more useful peop- way for people to think about that is rather than it being art and imprecise, is that it's a skill that needs to be learned. Because yes. I think that probably sounds more... Um, uh, more like something to improve rather than I. a lot of runners, again, being type A and thinking they don't want arty stuff. They want precision. But a skill, more it, it is a precise thing that you can still dial in. Yeah, yeah. It's more palatable to, to people to think about that. And, and you're actually, you are right. It is a skill. And here's the other thing. People think, often think that, well, I know how I feel and, and I know what my, my body is sensing. And what do you mean a skill? Truly, this is something that does need to be practiced. You really need to consciously think about this and pay attention to it all the time, outside of your runs and within your runs. And over time, you will realize how much you were not in touch with those those little mm-hmm. micro sensations. It is a skill. It does need to be worked on to be developed. 
And a couple of things I think that can practically be used by people. Let's say someone's listening now and they are a half marathoner, a marathoner, they've only done road running. I'd say that doing a race when it doesn't have optimum conditions, that'll allow you to improve this. So maybe you you turn up to Boston like a couple of years ago when it was the gale force winds and, and heavy rain and cold. Seeing how you can adjust things based on that rather than just saying, well, this is the pace or the heart rate I should stick to, that's going to improve it. And that's a lot more similar to ultra running. And so I'd also say that a potential way to improve your road running and marathoning is to try a little bit of trail running and to try some some races where it'll just be more variables you're having to judge things by. And therefore, you're working on your judgment of effort. You can't just say just heart rate or something else, especially if the terrain is technical on one part and smooth on another part, uphill at 20% at one point, and then downhill at 20% another point. So I think ultra running can actually teach runners to do all of that better um, because it can be a bit harder to do it if you have uniform circumstances every time because there's fewer things that are being changed and that you're having to work it out for. But at least with an ultra, uh, there, there are more uh, things that will test you that way and help you dial it in. And I've certainly found that that's helped a lot of people I've coached. Would you say there's a maybe a benefit for a roadrunner to to try ultra running just for that reason, even if their their main thing is to improve their their marathoning? Completely, and and even vice versa. I, I think mm-hmm. paying attention to to giving yourself little nudges in places that push you a little bit out of your comfort or just give you a little bit of a different um, different view, a different sensation, are, is always good. And you know, there's an opportunity for this in every run you do anyway. So for you get a rock in your shoe, let's say, for example, you get a rock in your shoe or you overdressed or you underdressed or, or any, anything else that is coming up. These are all opportunities for you to kind of reflect on you know, how am I feeling in this moment and, and what psychological um, constructs am I using? What narratives are going on in my head? How am I talking to myself? What's the discussion going on there that be, will be contributing to my success or, or taking away from my success and, and actually causing me harm here? So the only, we talk about junk miles, the only junk runs are the ones that occur when you're not paying attention. You always have an opportunity to work on how you are dealing with any little, any little situation and any thoughts that crop up. And you are absolutely right that, that, that pays big dividend dividends then later on. And not just within racing, it'll improve your ability to train well, to see how you're feeling on any given day. So would you say then that for any runner of any standard, slow, fast, running really long stuff or short stuff, that they should still be including runs of kind of every type of intensity pretty much, but it'll just bias more towards the specifics of their type of race? Yes. Yeah, that, that's an easy answer. I just say yes. Yeah, yeah I, I assume that, but I, I think it's a, it's a good thing to clarify for people that uh, that we're still talking about those three kind of zones. They all they apply to everyone. It's not like you're an ultra runner, so you're only zone one, or you're a five k runner, so it's only zone three. That it's everyone's doing a bit of everything. Absolutely, and there's all. It seems like a simple answer. We 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 could go into hours and hours and hours, even a whole course on the underlying physiology of why that's true, but a quick and easy short answer, take home message, just yes. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so in your podcast, you always tend to, um, once we've discussed, you've discussed topics, you talk about what might be the differences for say female runners, given most research is for males or older runners, given most research again is kind of more, um, 30 year olds and similar. Um, so, it, why is that? And why why do you think there are significant differences there? Yeah. Well, that's a big that, question. That, that again is a big question. I know. You know <laughs> we're, we're skirting over many things in just a, a light way today. 
we have we have some really important uh, big theme topics within the question that you you have asked there i think to try to keep it simple when we when we look at male versus female you we're talking about bodies that have very different hormonal profiles we have bodies that are on average structurally also different for example wider hips on average for women at some levels we're we're the same. I mean, muscle is the same. So we take a single muscle cell out of a woman and a single muscle cell out of a man. And and if if they're the cell, same sort of cell type, you know, they're basically equally strong. But these environments within which all of our physiology works that I've just been talking about, they differ on average. And it's really important that we point that out, but on average. And so th- there's a factor. You know, there's also another factor here, though, Ian, that I don't hear talked about a whole a whole lot. And that is also the psychosocial factors. I mean, for example, you know, depending on what what um, part of the world you live in and what part of the world you're from, and even even your local town and your family have different views and and sort of raise you in different environments about quote unquote what what boys should do and quote unquote what girls should do and what's mm-hmm. expected of boys and what's expected of girls and i think that that's in a discussion that that isn't had enough because that that mental framework does play into the decisions you make while you're training, how you train, uh, the way you think about how you are training, and that all feeds back to have an impact also then on how you are how you're adapting. So I think that there are all those factors in the, the male female uh, uh, question and differences. Now with aging, we open up you know an, another can of worms there, but there are a lot of processes that go on while we age that alter how we adapt to physiologic stimuli. And it's those things that then make the make make the significant differences in um, why and how we uh, we should train and we and we can adapt as we get older. And do you think, to some degree, that there's even the just the personalized element of medicine and advice, where you could say, okay, well, this uh, this uh, study was done with thirty year old men, and you're a thirty year old man as well, <clears throat> but it still doesn't necessarily apply to your exact circumstance. That there's probably there's still the variations from one individual to another. And do you think that that's something where, in the future, um, you might get, you know? highly funded uh, professional running teams where they have it really dialed in and rather than just being here's the research of what the whole group of runners should be doing each and every one of them is maybe doing slightly different things based on being able to to dial that in more yeah absolutely any one variable like like say an age at 30 years old i mean two people that are each 30 years old can can look and be very different from another even if they have both been fit and training their whole lives so any one measure like that really tells us it tells us something but it but it tells us very little in the big the grand scheme of things about exactly how anybody should train so you're absolutely right the the precision medicine in the medical field precision medicine and personalized medicine is a is is a holy grail that that we're after right now and um we're finding lots of setbacks along the road as we think we're getting handles on how to approach individualized medicine but um you know i do think that it's still a reasonable target and a reasonable goal and that's true of how training should be as well the 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 um the the, the problem here though is that 
I where I see a lot of of companies cropping up and a lot of people buying into ideas that were already partially there. So for example, like that you can get a few devices, make a few measurements on yourself, like heart rate variability and your um, how well you're how much you're tossing and turning while you sleep, and then somehow you can use that to to dictate your training. So what I will say is that yes, that is the goal, Ian, but we haven't even taken one step mm-hmm. in that direction. Yeah, it, it does sound like it's something a long way away, but uh, even just appreciating the differences between male and female is a starting point, never mind between two I know, brothers, I suppose, where there'd still be differences. Yep. So <clears throat> I was going to try and delve a little bit into the mental and tactical side of training, but uh, I think we'll have to have you back if, if you're happy to come in, <laughs> in the future, because that again is, I think there's a full podcast about that. There, to be honest, there's a full podcast about pretty much every question I asked today, but thank you so much for, um, for giving us so much really uh, useful and insightful information. And where can we find you on the internet so people can follow you and the podcast? Everything for me is is Science of Ultra. So on Twitter, I'm at Science of Ultra. The website is scienceofultra.com. And really, if you just do a web search for Science of Ultra, you're going to hit on those things. Well, thank you so much, Sean. And was there anything else you wanted to add to anything we talked about today before we wrap it up? No, Ian, as you mentioned there, we could take any of these and then really get into the weeds with them and and probably bring out some more actionable information for people. But I had a really good time talking to you, and I so much appreciate you bringing me on to help me spread these great messages. And you're doing a great job with it. So um, best of luck uh, in this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, I've, I've been on the other side being the person questioned a lot on podcasts, but it's, uh, it's kind of nice to get to ask all the questions that I'm personally interested in and that are hopefully useful to people. So thank you, Sean. Um, like we said, Science of Ultra on all social media, as well as just Googling Science of Ultra for the website. I'll put that in the show notes as well, uh, as well as a bit more information about Sean and things he's researched. So thank you. T- and uh, hopefully we'll talk again uh, and maybe uh, delve into the mental side of things a bit more on that uh, next podcast. Sounds really great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. Bye. So thank you very much to Sean. I hope everyone found that very informative. Um, you can find out more information about his podcast and blog at scienceofultra.com and his social media handle is at scienceofultra. You can also contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanultra.com. That's S-H-A-R-M-A-N ultra.com or on social media at shamanian, at shamanian. Um, let me know if there's any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. And there's also a contact page on my website. Uh, we'd appreciate if you rate this podcast. Um, that'll allow us to move up the rankings and allow other runners to uh, to find this type of content more easily. Also, you can check out podiumrunner.com for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself. Our next episode is going to be about the microbiome and gut bacteria and how this is an emerging area of research and how it's pretty significant both for the ability to train and also for racing, even more so for longer distances. Um, but it applies to all runners. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will be coming out once a month, so that next next episode will be out one month after this one. Thank you.